Hello, friends. Welcome back to How to Talk to Weirdos, where we discuss communication with people who are different than you. And since we're all unique, that's pretty much everyone. When someone has a different style of communication, they can seem like a weirdo. And if they seem that way to you, you probably seem that way to them. As I like to say, everyone's kind of a weirdo. We're going to talk about some of the assumptions that we make and other pitfalls of communication so that we can all improve. There's a lot to cover, so let's get started. Welcome back to How to Talk to Weirdos. Today we have a very special guest. I'm excited about Matthew Zakreski. Matthew is a clinical psychologist, professor, author, and he's a professional speaker who has presented over 400 times all over the world. He specializes in working with neurodivergent people. Matthew, I'm very excited to have you here. Welcome. Thanks for having, having me, and please call me Matt. I'm only called Matthew when I'm in trouble. So. Ah. <laughs> we'll try to make sure you don't get in trouble today, so Matt, it is. <laughs> Fantastic. Matt, can you tell me and the audience, if you specialized in neurodivergent people and working with them, what does that actually mean? Because I've seen a lot of definitions and it, it doesn't seem clear. Right. And like any term that gets sort of taken over by popular culture, it gets twisted, it gets reimagined. The best way to think about brains is all brains represent neurodiversity, right? Just like, you know, there's a diversity of plants, right? All the things. But if we're going to talk about plants that follow the rules and plants that don't follow the rules, then we then that's when we get into the model of neurodivergent brains versus neurotypical brains. So neurodivergent brains are brains that are outside expected thought and behavior patterns. So about 70% of people are neurotypical. Their brains operate what basically how we'd expect brains to operate. The other 30% are ADHD brains, gifted, autistic, dyslexic, um, OCD, you know, and these, these terms represent, you know, a modern understanding of neuroscience. So we can look at a brain scan and say, oh, Look at that. That's what ADHD looks like in a brain, which provides us, I think, a really nice foothold to push back on this. Like it's somehow a choice or a parent's fault or somehow TikTok has something to do with it, I think. Um, <laughs> Everything. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I, I try to anchor all the stuff I do in brain science because I can say, hey, listen, I can look at a brain and tell you what the differences are. And those differences are way more than just how a kid does in school or how an adult does in the workplace. It shows up how we think of ourselves, how we communicate with others, the kind of jobs we can do, the kind of jobs we can't do. <laughs> so, you know, we need that brain science to sort of give us a, a guidepost to how to move forward. Great. So you mentioned about 70% are neuro uh, typical. And would you say it's somewhat of a bell curve? Some people are far off on one end of the curve and some people are far off on the other. And those are the people who are neurodivergent? Absolutely, right? And, you know, if we think about the bell curve in terms of, you know, the the world is built for the people in the middle, right? School is mm -hmm. built to educate the middle. Right. School is, you know, I mean, work is designed to take care of the most people in the most way possible, you know, and it's an efficient system. The, the problem is, is that when you have people who go out towards those tail ends, you know, the systems we've built don't work for people who 
are extremes. And one simple way to think about it is think about human height, right? Most doorways are about 6'6", right? So if you're six foot 10, the world is quite literally not built for you, right? right. You've got to duck to get through every door, right? And I, you know, in college, I was friends with the starting center on our basketball team and he was six foot 11. And, you know, he, they had to custom build him a bed to, so he could live in the dorms, right? Because the dorm beds were not built for a guy who's six foot 11, right? right? So, you know, most people never think about walking through a doorway, just like most people can walk into a classroom, sit down, more or less figure out what they're supposed to do, write the things down and move on with their lives. But if you're a neurodivergent person, your the way your brain and body work may make it a difficult fit or an impossible fit for you to be in those spaces. I feel like I grew up pretty neurodivergent because at least in some ways, people never made sense. Right. It seemed like they yep. all had a code book and what they were saying made sense to them, but it, it, it never really made sense to me. And so I ended up paying a, just a lot of attention to what people are doing much more than most people do yep. just to try and make sense of the way people were communicating, which I think in the long run has helped me because I've learned a lot from it. Um, but it's a constant challenge for me. Yeah. And and I appreciate you sharing that. And there's a, I don't have data on this, but you know, I would think there's a pretty high percentage of podcasters who are neurodivergent, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, and it's funny that idea of everybody else had a code book, everybody else like had, went to some meeting on how to be a human, and you missed it. Right. Is a common complaint amongst the neurodivergent. And it's actually the title of my book that comes out this year. It's, you know, the neurodivergent playbook, how to, how to get the code that nobody taught you. Right. And it's nice. just, let's break this, this whole, how to be a human in the world thing down. And, and it's a beautiful idea because there's so much vulnerability in saying like, why is it everybody else is marching to this one beat? And I feel like I'm off this other beat over here because the world isn't always friendly to people who raise their hands and say, I don't work that way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it's important that we talk about these things and especially in public spaces like a podcast to, to lay it out there like, yeah, hey, I'm probably this way too. And if your listeners are out there, they're probably nodding and saying like, wow, yeah, you know what? I think that makes a lot of sense. If Jeremy's like that, then I think I'm probably like that what do I do with that knowledge? So, and it seems to me, and maybe you can correct me. It seems like there are a lot of different dimensions on which someone could be typical or divergent. Yeah. I use the Myers Briggs as an example quite often. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I do, and one of the reasons I got interested in psychology is I, I took a three day Myers Briggs class when I was in high school. Yeah. And she used me as an example because I am so far on the ends of the tendencies that I was just fun for her to use as an example because it was so clear. Yeah. Um, but it seems like anyone who on any, any one dimension is off to a side, it, it makes it challenging. Yeah. And those people can be seen as the exceptions that prove the rule, right? Because you know, you enter into conversations like, oh, are you an extrovert or an introvert? 
right? Now, I'm very extroverted, but right? I'm like near the far end of the extrovert scale. My wife is very introverted. But that is not to say that my wife can't be extroverted and it isn't to say that I can't be introverted, mm -hmm. right? You know, what, what I've built a lot of my therapy practice around is this idea of what I like to call third door solutions, right? Our brains naturally like dichotomies. It's, you know, the light is on or it's off. I'm hungry or I'm full, right? I'm sleepy or I'm awake. But in most of those examples, there are gradients between those things, right? And, and when you train your brain to look that way, you actually gain a lot more flexibility because you're not beholden to these constructs that may not actually fit, right? I mean, you know, you know, I'm not hungry right now. That doesn't mean I couldn't eat. Right. If somebody walked into the, you know into my office with a bagel, I'd be like, well, I mean, I'll have a bagel. Who doesn't want a bagel right now, right? You know, and it's this idea of if you think to yourself, "Well, I'm weird," it's that's that could be a box, mm -hmm. and weird is a thing that a is defined by whatever normal is, if normal even exists, and weird would be the opposite of that. But I would argue that the communities you participate in get to tell us what normal is, right? So, you know, yes, if you want to wear your live action role play costume to high school, people are probably going to look at you like you're weird. But if you wore, if you wore your LARP suit to a LARP convention, people would be like, well, that's just, that's just Tim. Tim is just, right. I mean, Tim's an orc, right? I mean, that's yeah. just what Tim does, right? So... You know, I think that so much of success in life is finding your people, your communities, because they emphasize the best things about you and make it easier to develop the communication and interpersonal strategies that we want people to do, right? If you're spending a lot of energy trying to like what we call masking, right, trying to like fit in with the, with other people it's harder for you to have more energy to tap into those moments of authentic communication and connection. I, I like what you're saying. I'm going to go back to your third door option because I think it's a balance. I think there yeah. it's great to find your community, to find your people. I know when I went to, I went to UMass Amherst and my first semester we lived in a dorm and I, it just felt the same as high school, which I didn't love. Right. And I'm like, well, maybe this is all there is to it. And yeah. then in mid-year, I moved to a different dorm, a whole different area. And, I, and it was like a deep breath of relief. I'm like, oh, I'm home. These yeah. are my people. It was yeah. so wonderful. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, I also do a lot of work with engineers who have become managers. Yeah. And, and that kind of forces them into not just working with their people, but mm -hmm. having to figure out how to communicate across groups. Do you have some advice or stories about that? Oh, so, I mean, I, I do very similar work as well. And it's a thing I like to call the curse of competence, mm -hmm. right? Because if you're good at stuff and if you're an engineer, you're probably pretty good at stuff. Sooner or later, somebody puts you in charge of other people. And it's, a you know, I mean, when I teach college students and grad students, one of the things we talk about is just because somebody has a doctor after b before their name 
doesn't mean they're a good teacher. It mm -hmm. means they clearly have a certain amount of content knowledge, right? But it's the sort of thing where I've had, you know, lay people who were better teachers than doctors because the lay people understood or communicated in a strong way. So one of the classes I, I teach is about creativity. And creativity, we have this idea that it only looks one way, right? It's the arts, broadly speaking. But you can be creative in coding. You can be oh, creative yeah. in cooking. You can be creative in how you dress, in how you problem solve. I mean, creativity can look like anything. And I use that as a map to work with people who are rising up the corporate ladder and say, you don't need to be that stand and deliver manager, right? You don't need to be the agent of transformational change, especially if that's not your comfort zone, right? We start by playing to our strengths. So if you are a concrete communicator, if you're somebody who's like, I need X, Y, Z done by this time on this day, then we start there and your team will know their expectations. They know where they stand. You'll have meetings. The meetings will be organized and they'll have probably schedules and timesheets and we'll all feel really good about it. And we're going to use that to raise your floor, right? So your floor becomes, hey, listen, everyone's going to know where they stand. Everyone's going to know their job. I am a clear communicator. As that goes on, we build more of the interpersonal skills, some of the motivation stuff, you know, mm -hmm. interpersonal problem solving. And I think most people, when they get into, when they get into leadership management roles, is they feel like just like creativity, it only has to be one thing. It can only, you're only allowed to be one thing. I think that's actually where people fail because they overextend themselves trying to be somebody they're not, you know? So I think being the strongest manager you can is about understanding your strengths and weaknesses, playing to your strengths while working on improving your weaknesses, right? It's not a get out of jail free card. It's not like, well, I'm not good at people, so I'm just never going to be good at people. Right. No, life doesn't work that way, right? I've got to learn how to run money if I'm going to run my business, right? So it's the idea is like you start with your strengths and you use that to bring everything else up with you because the rising tide does lift all, lift all boats. You, we just need to be very intentional about how we approach that. Yeah, the self-awareness is so key. Yeah. Um, but as you mentioned, it can go too far where people just shrug their shoulders and say, well, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a money guy. It's like, well, you kind of have or to be well. <laughs> or find someone who is right. Well, and that's, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because to me, being a month, like being not a money guy myself, I hired an accountant. He's great, mm -hmm. but I have to know my stuff to talk to my accountant, right? It's like, if you had a great surgeon and you showed up and said, fix me, the surgeon's going to say, well, what do I need to fix? Yeah, right? oh, You'll figure it out. Just run an MRI. It is, it is fine, right? You know, I think that partnering with professionals, whether it's a therapist like me or an accountant or a surgeon or a landscaper or whatever it might be, requires an awareness of the problem, the ability to articulate that problem, and the ability to co-create a, a battle plan with somebody, Right. And I think a lot of people fall apart between steps two and three. They might know what's wrong. They might be even able to say it, but you know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, right? I just had someone right. cut down a bunch of dead trees in my backyard. And he's like, listen, we can only get to so many of these trees. We've got to cut down those trees. 
clear out the brush and then go back and get the rest of them. Right. And I'm like, but, but I just, but I want it done now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, to be able to navigate those moments is I'm going to argue the biggest difference between successful and unsuccessful people is when you take, when you get a curveball, when you have an unexpected bump in the road, how do you navigate it internally and how do you navigate it externally? That it, it's pretty interesting that you're saying that because one of going back to the Myers-Briggs, one of the tendencies has to do with how much you like planning things ahead. And when you, you talked about that party, I was thinking, I don't want to do any planning of anything because I hate the planning part. I love reacting. I love kind of having enough background material that when the situation happens, I'll be able to figure it out when I'm there. Um, So, but I know other people that drives them crazy and they need to have looked at all of the potential steps and make a spreadsheet and map everything out and with a plan A, B, and C just in case. Yeah. So everyone has their own special way of dealing with that sort of adversity. And that, I mean, I love the word adversity because adversity doesn't mean bad, right? It just means not what I want. (laughs) So if we only ever do the things we want, we will be satisfied, but we won't grow, right? Um, I just finished reading David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell, and he talks about near misses and far misses and he talks about how near misses can cripple you and make it so that you're not going to go back or or do a thing but a far miss like when something bad happens and you overcome it just makes you so much stronger because you know like in the future bad stuff can happen or adversity can happen and i i've dealt with it before i'll deal with it again yep and and i would even i love gladwell too and I would even take what you said and tweak it just a scotch by saying bad things will happen. They're guaranteed. Oh, like, yeah. You know, like if you think about success rates or failure rates as a fraction, you can never make the number on top of the fraction a zero. It's always going to be one. The question is, how big can you make the bottom part? Right. You know, I'm a parent. My kids offer me hundreds of thousands of opportunities every week to get it right. But I will, I can't sit here and tell you that my failure rate zero, right? Because sometimes I screw up because I'm human. And, and if you, if you put yourself in this position that says successful people are, or successful people do, and thus I must be that person, you're not giving your space any wiggle room to grow, to struggle, to fail. You know, everything involves a learning curve and And it's so easy to look at people and be like, well, you know, they're so successful. Look what they do. And A, we don't see the hard work they put in behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And B, we can't be other people, right? If you spend the time looking at what other people are doing, you're losing a certain amount of the uniqueness that is your journey, right? And you know, I mean, as I enter more into the professional speaking space, it is very easy to look at other professional speakers and be like, I'm never going to be them. Well, I don't have to, you yeah, know, in good. fact, I shouldn't, right? I would love to have their success. I would love to have their, their reach and the opportunities, 
But if I try to be person X, I'm never going to be me. And it's all, that's a hard thing to wrap your brain around. So going back to the topic that we started on neurodivergence, do you find that people who are neurodivergent are more likely to want to try to be like people in the middle? in those moments is an opportunity to do one of three things, right? To utterly fake it and act like you love it. So you go along to get along to utterly disengage from it and say like, this is stupid and terrible. I'm leaving or what most people choose, which is the, I'm going to navigate the situation as best I can, right? Engaging in the parts of this. I like trying to dis deconnect from the parts I don't like, but the problem is, is that you've got to give people permission to have that third option and give them the skills to navigate it successfully, right? You know, the Super Bowl is coming up, right? I love professional football. You know, it's not my wife's thing. Every year we have a Super Bowl party and every year, well, it was early off in our dating, my wife would try and sit there and watch it and she would, you know, and a couple of years I'm like, babe, like, I just want you in the room with us. Like, I want you eating the chips and dip and I want you hanging out. Like, so now she curls up on the couch with a good book or a craft and like looks up at the commercials and is like, ah, you know, like not oh, very good, you know, and that's, that's, that's a third door solution. Like that's authentic engagement that she's not spending the energy masking on that. Right. So yes, like there are times that all of us, especially those of us who are neurodivergent have to mask. Right. Absolutely. But if you see masking as a means to an end, not a thing I have to do all the time, right? It's, it's got a major benefit for your sense of self and the energy you bring into the world. Kind of like a crutch. So yeah. sometimes you need a crutch because your leg is broken, but mm. it's not something you want to be using for the rest of your life. Oh, heaven, right? So yeah, absolutely. As much as you can uh, use it when you need it and then try to discard it when you can get away without it. So yeah. is that how you got into this whole topic of, of your expertise because you grew up with it? Yeah. I mean, I always say this work is personal and professional. You know, mm -hmm. I, I really want to be the adult that kids like me needed. And, you know, I was lucky. Both of my parents were clinical psychologists, right? Oh, nice. And so I had a lot of that support. My parents knew what to look for. We had, you know, financially, we were able to tap into some of these programs and systems. Not every kid has that. And that's actually what drew me to doing more speaking and consulting. Because when you do therapy, you help one kid. If I can talk to a school and say, hey, here's what this looks like. You have a million of these kids. Like, let me teach you how to serve their kids. Then I'm helping 2000 kids and I'm helping mm -hmm. 2000 families. Right. I mean, then, you know, it's, it's not throwing a rock in a pond. It's throwing a boulder in a pond. And, you know, if I have the ability to do that stuff, I feel like I, you know, I'm obligated to do so. Um, it's lucky for me is that I love doing it. So, um, you know, but there's still just a lot of misconception out there. There's still a lot of bad science or old recycled myths. And, you know, the more we can push back on that stuff, I think the more we give our kids a fighting chance to not only just be successful, but be satisfied with their lives, you know, live a life that's authentic and meaningful and 
you know, and, and find spaces in a world that is not necessarily built for them where they can feel safe and feel supported, find their people, you know, and that's what gets me up in the morning, I guess. I love it. I love what you're doing. And I love when people don't just teach what they're excellent at, they teach what they've had to learn. So yeah. if you can be a person who has been in the shoes of the person you're teaching, it's so much more powerful than if you're just someone who's excellent at something and always has been. When you're trying to teach it to someone who struggles, it, it's just not as effective. So as of the timing of when this comes out, I will have just made a podcast about changing the name of this podcast. So I'm interested in your name, in your, your feedback and the decision may have already been made by the time this is posted, but I have had it be how to talk to weirdos thinking about the people who are on the ends of those bell curves and how difficult it is for them to talk to the average person or the typical person and the typical person to talk to them. Yeah. But what I found is not everybody likes the term weirdo. I've tried to normalize it with some success, but I'm thinking of changing the name to either neuroconverse, aka talking to people who are neurodiverse, or mm -hmm. neuroconversant, aka talk you know talking to people who are neurodivergent and or being fluent in their language. Yeah. Curious of your thoughts on either one. I mean, neuroconversant rolls off the tongue. I think that's, and I love that because to be conversant in something, it doesn't mean that you are an expert and it doesn't mean you're fluent. It means that you are able to engage, right? So I would definitely vote for the latter. I think that's a, that's a good brand name. And, you know, I could see how the word weirdos would turn some people off. I personally, you know, I describe myself as a professional nerd, so I'm probably mm -hmm. not the right person to weigh in on. I'm like, oh, eh, weirdo. I'm, who's not weird? I'm weird. Everyone's weird. Really right. But, you know, I mean, we want to we want to broaden the the audience. And I think neuroconversion is a, is a good title. I think people will really respond to it. Great. That's where I was leaning, um, but it's good to have your feedback. All right. We are going to start wrapping up. And I've got three questions I ask everyone. The first one's part A and B, a place that you have loved to go and a place that you are looking forward to going. Yeah. So I lived in Australia for a while. Um, and I think basically every day about how to get back there. Uh, so I would love to return to Australia. Um, in fact, you know, it's 2024. It This summer will be have been 20 years since I lived there. So it is uh, time to find my way back down under. Um, you know, and there's a big gifted scene in Australia. So I'm just waiting for one of them to like, yes, you can keynote it on my conference. I'm like, yeah, you know, um, so that's where I want, where I would like to return, uh, where I'd like to go. Um, I've always wanted to get to Egypt. Um, mm. I just, I, you know, to be able to see the pyramids, the Sphinx. I mean, I just, you know, archeology span is so fascinating and, you know, it's a part of the world I haven't gotten to explore very much. So that would, that would be the top of my list. I like it. I would love to go to Australia and I have been to Egypt, which was yeah. fantastic. When I was a kid, I wanted to be an archeologist. So it checked a lot of boxes going there. Well, and a lot of neurodivergent boxes too. It's like, ah, yeah, like, you know, it was like either marine biologist, Egypt, archeologist, or paleontologist. Like most of us wanted to be one of those three things. 
or in my case, all three at the same time. Um, and Batman at night. That was my yeah, plan. Well, of, uh, of course. Obviously. Right? <laughs> so. All right. The second question is, who do you think is a great communicator, either public figure or just someone in your personal life? So this is going to make me sound a bit like a fanboy, and he hates when I say this, but um, Scott Barry Kaufman um, in our field. Um, Scott's, I mean, he's an incredible scholar and speaker and just general human being. Um, uh, but every time Scott does a podcast, every time Scott does a talk, you know, I really try to watch and listen because I feel like I learn a lot from him. Um, but he balances the humility and the expertise as well as any speaker out there. And, you know, I mean, as someone who is, you know, if Scott in the, is in the 99.99th percentile of what we do, I'm in like the 99.8th percentile. And even with that said, I'm still learning stuff, right? And it's just not only what he knows, but how he sends it out there. Mm. So, I know, I mean, Scott, yes, I'm sorry I embarrassed you, but also it's, <laughs> when I tell you this to your face, so. And I'm going to put it in the show notes, so it'll embarrass him even more. All right. And uh, what is one piece of advice that you think everyone can benefit from? The communication advice. The communication advice that is most helpful, and I find that it works as well in parenting, in therapy, in business with your partner, is what we call meta communication or talking about talking. And there's a big difference between walking in and saying to your partner, like, you know, I'm mad at you and walking and saying to your partner, I need to have a conversation with you about something I'm mad about. The idea is those little tags, those little tweaks go a long way towards keeping the people we're talking to regulated. Because when people are regulated, they're receptive and responsive. When they're dysregulated, they're harder to communicate, right? They get defensive, they shut down. You know, I mean, how many times have you gotten a text from your boss like, hey, I need to talk to you at the end of the day. And you spend the rest of the day going, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get fired. Yeah. What's get that fired. about? Yeah, right. You know, and my, my old boss was really good at sending me emails that would be like, hey, he's like, I need to talk to you today. It's about your internship. It's about something I need you to do. Do not worry about it. You're standing here. This place is fine. Right. And it's, I don't know if you can ever be not anxious, but it was less anxious. Right. That's, mm -hmm. and that's good meta communication. So, you know, if you're in that, if you're in that leadership role and that's new to you, it's totally appropriate to say things like, hey, this is a stretch for me. This is hard. Or like, I've never had these kind of conversations before. I would welcome your feedback, right? It lets people know that it's not a tiered power down conversation. There are elements of it that we can connect as equals, and when people feel connected, they engage more and you're going to have better conversations. So, you know, if you ever listen to me, like do therapy, you, I use a lot of meta communication. I'll like, Hey, you know what? I love that. We're talking about this thing. I need to change the conversation to this other thing. Or I'll say to my kids, like, I need to give you some tough feedback right now. And it's probably not going to feel very good, but it's coming from a place of love. Let me tell you why I need to tell you this. Right? So the goal is not to make them, gee, Dr. Matt, I am being terrible to my parents. I'm glad you told me that. Yay. Right. But if you can put context around those difficult words, people feel better. And when they feel better, they do better. 
and then we have better outcomes and we can move on with our lives. So meta communication is the uh, strategy that seems to work really well. I like it. I, I, we've also talked with other people on this show about just letting people know what you want out of a conversation before you start mm -hmm. it so that they're not going in a different direction than, than what's actually needed. So talking about talking, I love it. All right, uh, Matt, you're no longer Matthew, you're Matt. Where can people find out more about you and or reach out? Um, so I'm all over the interwebs. Um, so for our therapy practice, it's the neurodiversitycollective.com. Um, that's where myself and our, we have a wonderful team. Uh, we just hired some new people because um, there's just a lot of need out there. So if therapy is what you're looking for, the neurodiversitycollective.com. If you're looking, if you're like, I like this guy, I like what he's saying, I think my company or my organization would benefit, it's drmattsokreski.com. Um, and that's where, you know, you can figure out how to get me to come to you and do it, you know, do these messages to a big room. Um, and, you know, we have a really fun Facebook group, you know, Dr. Matt Sokreski, I'm sorry, facebook.com slash Dr. Matt Sokreski. You know, it's nerd humor and neuroscience and psychology jokes and parenting and basically anything that dances across my beautiful brain. Um, and I'm lucky that I get to do a lot of podcasts. So, you know, I mean, it's every so often I punch myself into Spotify. I'm like, how many things like, wow, that's a lot of names. So, you know, if you liked what you heard and bless you for that, you kind humans out there on the world, I am very findable. Um, and, you know, because when you love what you do, you want to do as much of it as you can. That is wonderful. I am going to put uh, a number of those links in the show notes so that it makes it even easier for people to find you. Matt, it has been such a pleasure. I really appreciate all the insights you've shared with us. Thanks for joining. Awesome. It was a true pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of How to Talk to Weirdos. Hopefully you found it both interesting and useful. If either of those things is true, please share. Do you have a friend or a coworker who could benefit from listening? maybe a family member you're going to be spending the holidays with, please send them a link to your favorite episode and see if your conversations don't get just a little bit easier. I would really appreciate it. Thank you so much and have a great week.